0: Hello my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today I'm joined by Tara Westover who's the author of this year's must-read book. I think it's probably a must-read book for any year. It's called Educated and it is the story of how someone brought up by a survivalist family in Idaho who never went to school, had no formal education, ended up 10 years later with a Cambridge PhD. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. So I should probably declare a bit of an interest here. When I say Tara came to Cambridge to do a PhD, she did do it with me. Uh, I was her supervisor. And I have a very small walk-on part in the book. These are not the most exciting bits of the book. But it's not, I'm not saying this is a must-read because I'm in it. I'm saying it because it is an amazing book. And I'm just going to read a little bit of the Sunday Times review. It is the story of a young woman who showed the most remarkable resilience in the face of extreme poverty rigid religious beliefs, violence and family betrayals. It is a beautifully written account of how she grasps the sheer enormity of the world and struggles to find her own place within it. The result is a memoir that is fit to stand alongside the classics. So it's a really good book.
1: They were nice to me.
0: (laughs) It's about everything. It's about all sorts of things. We're not called talking all sorts of things, although maybe (laughs) we should be. We're called talking politics. And it is in part, a book about different political outlooks. And also, it's about your journey through very, very different worlds. And apart from anything else, these are worlds where people see politics completely differently. So if we kind of follow you on the journey, this conversation is going to be one about how some of the politics played out in these different parts of your life. But if we start at the beginning, where the book starts, where you grew up, and it is a world overshadowed by religion, but it also comes with a very distinctive, political outlook too. How did politics look to your family when you were growing up?
1: Well, if I were to sum it up, I would say, so I was born the youngest of seven children. I was raised by a father who was something of a charismatic radical. So he was opposed to a lot of the institutions that most people would just take for granted, public education, doctors and hospitals, anything to do with the government. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he opposed these things is because he thought they had been corrupted by something like the Illuminati. So my family just avoided these institutions altogether. And as an adult, I can see how bizarre this is. But when I was a child, nothing about the way we lived seemed strange to me. So in terms of political outlook, I think from the family perspective, it's about how your experiences of something, I mean, if you don't have your own experiences of the world, what you believe about the world will be what other people tell you about it. And so I had never been to school, not for a single day. And so when my father said, that public education was part of a corrupt institution, part of a fallen world that brainwashed people to take them away from God. I believed that. I had no reason not to believe that. Same thing about doctors and hospitals. We'd never, we never went to the doctor. We never went to a hospital, not when we were ill, not when we were injured. You know, my dad had a junkyard and we were injured quite a bit. Like the time my brother lit his leg on fire, it was covered in third degree burns. And we, we treated that at home with herbalism. And as far as I knew, that was the best way to do it. And same thing with the government. Like many of my siblings, I didn't have a birth certificate. When I was nine, I was issued a delayed certificate of birth. But before that, according to the state of Idaho and the federal government, I didn't exist. So when you don't have your own experiences, I think it's very easy for someone to come in and say, this is what the world looks like. And as far as you will ever know, that is that's exactly what it is.
0: So what did your father think would happen to you if you went to school? So you, you would be corrupted by this? Evil worldview, but what did he actually think that meant?
1: I think he believed that schools were again part of this very large-scale conspiracy, whether it's the Illuminati or the New World Order. He had a lot of different names for it, but I think he believed that there were these subtle corrupting influences that had taken root in in public education again, in in the medical establishment, as he would call it. So I think he was worried that we would be brainwashed. Effectively, I think that was the concern.
0: And you would therefore abandon him and his way of life. I mean, that was part of the fear that you would, if you went to school, you would end up moving away.
1: Not just moving away. I think I think, moving away might not have occurred to him actually because people don't tend to move away from where I'm from. But I think, I think his fears were more basic, you know, that we would go to a doctor was a fear of his because he believed that they were corrupt. I think he, at his worst moments, maybe even believed that they were trying to do harm. And he also believed that there was a certain righteousness to not going. So this whole idea that you're on the path to God and you can so easily get off the path. And I should say about the religious aspect, my dad, I would say, was was the vehicle for his particular kind of brand of paranoia. But I don't. I mean, the religion, I don't think, is is the reason behind it. My dad was Mormon. My whole town was Mormon. Everyone else in our town sent their kids to school, went to the doctor you know, it's not a Mormon thing to be opposed to doctors and hospitals and education. That was very much a a my dad thing.
0: Because there's a kind of spectrum here, which is that suspicion of the federal government is quite a widespread view, Mm. particularly in the kind of parts of the states that you grew up in. So yeah, not to send your kids to school is pretty extreme for want of a better world. But the idea that politics and politicians and particularly what goes on in Washington is somehow this kind of corrupt other world thing that you need to resist. That was I'm guessing, but that was not so unusual for the time and place you grew up.
1: No, it's kind of funny. I thought when I was a kid, I thought that our town was full of, you know, communist, liberal, socialists, because that's what my dad said it was.
0: And then you came to Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: and then I grew up and I had a conversation with my brother recently where he said this really bizarre thing to me. He said, somehow, when I was a kid, I remember thinking of everyone else in our town as city kids which my hometown had 200 people in it. It's this extremely isolated farming community in Idaho. And here's my brother, five, six, seven years old, thinking of these farm kids as city, as city kids. And for him, that was alienating, because we thought, right, well, these are people that my dad described as socialists, yeah, later. I remember when I was at Cambridge, and I would return home, and I would have conversations with them, and I would realize but
0: they these are
1: fairly right-wing Tea Party Republicans. But you know, I had grown up thinking that they were communists. <laughs>
0: So there are bits in the book where you describe incidents that clearly overshadow other people's memories, and for you they're there, but they're they're much more marginal. So one of them that really stands out is nine eleven. Mm. So you remember nine eleven, but you didn't know about the twin towers when it happened. What did you know about New York?
1: I'm not sure I knew very much about New York. Music was was a thing in my family. We we really valued music, and we'd become slightly obsessed with the Les Mis Rob musical. And so I was aware that there was a city in the United States you could go to to see this play. And my brother, my older brother Sean, was a truck driver. And we had tried to hatch this plan where we could find loads from Idaho that would take us to New York so that we could see this show. And that was my whole experience of New York. It was the scene of this play. I definitely never heard of the Twin Towers. I I didn't know anything about the Middle East, except as a kind of biblical, I mean, I'd read the Bible and knew all about it in that context. I think when the Twin Towers fell, for me and my family, it was more of a sign of the end of times, which we were always looking out for anyway. We'd been looking out for the end of the world for my whole life. So that just seemed like, no, this is really gonna be it. It's really gonna come this time.
0: How did you discover what came after the Twin Towers? So if this is the sign of the end of the world, what are the other signs then that your father was looking for? What was the, how did the news play out?
1: Well, I think if you're someone who's interested in all this stuff, I mean, the Twin Towers was a, was an interesting one because it was since nothing happened. And yes, there's a war, but it's very far away and you don't have any real experiences of it. And it just drags on and on and on. Other moments were much more intense in a way because they were packed together, like the Y2K experience, where my dad was sure it was going to be this day. And then it wasn't.
0: Yeah, and you say he was, he was almost heartbroken he was on the of... turn of the millennium when the world didn't end, right?
1: Well, I think he had been... I would say, gently made fun of by people in our town for so many years and kind of mocked for that, for how serious he was taking these things and how, you know, he was telling people there was one gas station in the town. And he sort of said to the owner, you know, you need to really chain up your store. It's going to get looted, all these terrible things. And people kind of laughed at him. And I think that would have been a real reversal when that happened. We would have been the people who were prepared. We would have been the people with food. We would have been the people with fuel. We would have had means to communicate because we were ready. And I remember that night when I realized that the world hadn't ended and I went to bed. It, yeah, he seemed smaller to me than he had that morning because he responded to it in this kind of childlike, disappointed way. And I remember just feeling sorry, really, because I had always thought of him as this kind of Noah-like character who was following the Lord and, and doing what he should do, even, even though everyone else was mocking him. And then it almost seemed cruel to me. That the world hadn't ended that God had denied him this thing that he that he seemed to deserve I felt like for how faithful he'd been.
0: So I talked to you a bit about this book when you were writing it and I, I should say I didn't know so when I taught you I didn't know your story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't lead with that. <laughs> uh, and so I reading this book is was a revelation for me too but when we first talked about it you thought that one of the things that you might do was explore the people who did go to school in your town and kind of, Mm. as it were, it's about education and it is a book about education, but about what happened to the people who are still living there, living now in Trump's America. Your dad's political views were pretty far along that spectrum that I described, but lots of people in Idaho and in your town would have been presumably or are now Trump supporters? Yeah, Idaho
1: is is quite Trump, yeah. Yeah.
0: So what is your sense of the people of your generation, the ones who did go to school, who did go to doctors, but who grew up with that deep suspicion of federal government and other things? Are they, how do they feel about the state of America now? Do you have a a sense of that?
1: I think a little. I like to think about political differences, especially in my town, political opinions in my town in terms of experience. So I think that there can be a tendency on the left to think that really it's a case of getting the evidence together and convincing people who they think of as ignorant of things that they think of as the truth. Again, I think it, I think it's so much more helpful to think about the experiences that people have. So one example of that, what I think of as a Republican tenet certainly used to be, I don't know how much it still is, but I think it still is, that government is ineffective. If you live in Boston, you have a lot of examples of the government not being ineffective. You have roads, you have schools that work, you have a healthcare system, you have any number of positive interactions with the government on a day-to-day basis. If you live in Idaho, you probably have two interactions with the government. Mostly it's gonna be speeding tickets, traffic violations. And the second major interaction they have is farm regulations that are handed down by bureaucrats and they don't always make sense. They often don't make sense. They're written by people who've never been on a farm. So I, I think this idea that you can just convince people you know, show them that they're wrong. I think it's just it's just a flawed approach because they're not wrong from their experience. Governments are terribly good at running cities; they're not so great at running the country in, in the sense of country being rural, the, the, the so, countryside. As we the countryside, exactly. Like they're not great with the countryside, and so I mean, the rural schools is is a particularly interesting case because it's not that they're bad schools. But they do have problems that are specific to being rural. Rural schools do really well on national exams. They do really well with graduation rates. But they really fumble with what they call transition and alignment, which is getting kids from high school into a university and getting them to graduate and getting jobs. And there's probably all kinds of reasons why rural schools struggle. I think one of them could be that for most rural kids that I spoke to, people in my town, the only person they'd ever met who had a college degree was their high school teacher and a lot of times those high school teachers had done correspondence degrees and had never been to university so you ask someone there's one woman I interviewed who had gone to Idaho State to study communications and she dropped out after two semesters and I asked her what were you gonna do with communications degree it took her a really long time to answer and then she said I guess I thought I would be a TV presenter And her saying that really stuck with me because I thought, you know, she has no idea what she can do with this degree. That's the only visible thing. She doesn't have any concept of the many other things that you can do with this kind of education. So I think there's a general sense that people value education, that it helps, but I don't think in the specifics, I don't think they have the role models that they need.
0: So your story is remarkable because it doesn't include the going to school bit and it goes straight to the college bit. Do you think if you had gone to your local school, you wouldn't have wound up going to college?
1: I don't know. I'm not very good at counterfactuals. I couldn't possibly suss that out. I think there are things that I'm grateful to my parents for about my education and non-education, and I think they took it too far. <laughs> but I would say one thing that my parents believe and that they said to me and they said it often was that you can teach yourself anything better than someone can teach it to you which I think is absolutely true (laughs) And, and I have a couple I would say concerns about education the way that I hear people talk about it the way that I see it I've never experienced it in that way but the way that other people seem to have experienced it. And one of them is it does seem to be really passive in the way that we conceive of it. And if you go back to John Dewey and he talks about, you know, you have the social element, you have the individual element, or what society brings to education or what an individual brings to education. He talks about how there needs to be balance. It does seem to me that that's wildly out of balance right now and that the social is really overemphasized. And we think of classrooms as places where one person stands and sort of inflicts information on a group of other people. And I think what it should be is is a, is a place that people go to have questions answered and there's almost a feeling that it's a conveyor belt and you stand passively on this conveyor belt and you come out the other side educated. And I'm grateful to my family that that idea was not in existence. It would never have occurred to my mother. When I decided I wanted to go to college and I said, right, I need to figure this out and i bought an act study guide and i opened it up and and i couldn't solve any of the math problems and this was of concern so i took it to my mother and i said mom they've made a mistake in this printing they have all these letters in here where where are the numbers and she said oh this is algebra (laughs) and i said can you teach this to me and she said not really i've kind of forgotten it Uh, but you know there was this idea that you yeah you can you know go learn it you have a book or go find a book we actually didn't have a textbook for algebra I had to go buy one but I do appreciate that idea because I think in a way we can and I hate the word disempower it sounds a bit cliche but I really mean it in the sense that I think we can convince people you can't learn things and it becomes true
0: so you yours was the active version of this you decided you really decided you wanted to go to college and you had to find the means to do it and so you went to BYU Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon, broadly speaking, a Mormon university.
1: <laughs> Not broadly, very much. <laughs> it's <clears> owned very by much. the Mormon Church and it's 99% Mormon.
0: <laughs> okay. It's a 99% <laughs> Mormon university. So you're moving from this very small, closed community, basically your family, to, it's still, it's a good university, right? It's a it's I
1: thought BYU was a really wonderful place in a lot of ways. I think it was the best place for me.
0: So what was the biggest, again, I'm trying to drag it back to the politics of this, (laughs) what was the biggest gulf or shock when you came across people your age, students, not regular students, because this is a Mormon university, so it's going to be distinctive, but people who've had a much more conventional upbringing, and how they saw the world, and how they thought about the world, and how they thought about politics?
1: Well, BYU is definitely a you'd say more republican place it's a very right-leaning state and it's uh, Mormons tend to be a bit right-leaning but that said I think that there's a stereotype that that Mormonism would be a very intellectually closed community and there's some sense in which that's true you know I did a degree in BYU and I never once heard a serious defense of feminism it never happened and there
0: did you hear serious attacks on Oh,
1: constantly. Right. Yes. So it wasn't uh, just
0: it wasn't just passive. They actually. Yeah, I mean, if someone. I mean, you called had you some descriptions f- in the book of. Some if someone moments.
1: called you a feminist, it signaled the end of that argument, and it also signaled that you'd lost. I mean, the first feminists I ever met were in Cambridge, and they sort of announced themselves to be feminists. I stared at them like they were exotic birds. I'd never, I'd <laughs> <laughs> never seen a feminist before, so BYU wasn't wasn't the place for that necessarily, but it had some important things that I think other universities don't it's a really good place to ask questions and it's a really good place to have debate because Mormons have this wonderful thing where they're trying to save your soul and every debate and discussion begins with the assumption that we're all children of God. And I think in practice what that means is I think no matter how personal a debate is, you can, you can be saying something that goes to the heart of who somebody is and offends them to the very core, but there's no breaking of charity with each other. There's no sense that now you're a bad person because we don't agree. And, you know, I think Mormons are often accused of being a cult, and I would say one of the um one of the true signs of a cult, right, is sort of ideological purism and that you ostracize people who don't fit that ideological mold. And I would say I've experienced more of that in Cambridge than BYU, and I love Cambridge, but I would say BYU is not a place that you would get unfriended virtually or otherwise for saying something that didn't fit. There was a very strong idea of what the doctrine was and what was acceptable. But there wasn't a sense that you were a bad person or there was, that you didn't belong there, you shouldn't be there if you thought something that didn't fit the mold. I'm yeah. probably going to get thrown out for saying that.
0: No, no, that's really, that, <laughs> y- you've come into a constant theme of this podcast. We're going to come back to Cambridge as a cult, definitely. Oh, okay, <laughs> Good. Uh, There's lots that we could talk about That
2: How old up?
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. I want to read you just one little bit of the book because it is, it really comes across strongly that BYU was a place that to you was full of possibilities you hadn't even thought of. So I'm just going to read about how you arrived at a kind of course of study, which is the start of chapter 27. I'd come to BYU to study music so that one day I could direct a church choir. But that semester, the fall of my junior year, I didn't enrol in a single music course. I couldn't have explained why I dropped advanced music theory in favour of geography and comparative politics, or gave up sight singing to take history of the Jews. But when I'd seen those courses in the catalogue and read their titles aloud, I had felt something infinite, and I wanted to taste of that infinity. For four months I attended lectures on geography and history and politics. I learned about Margaret Thatcher and the 38th parallel and the Cultural Revolution. I learned about parliamentary politics and electoral systems around the world. I learned about the Jewish diaspora and the strange history of the protocols of the elders of Zion. So that's a pretty broad education, <laughs> right? I wish I'd done that degree. <laughs> um, what did they teach you about Margaret Thatcher? Can you remember? What was the BYU take on Margaret Thatcher?
1: I, I mean, I think it was fairly positive because it was BYU and it was, you know, Thatcher and Reagan and BYU was, is usually I mean, the, you, it's hard to generalize these things. So the funny thing about BYU is you have a fair number of liberal professors, but they sort of hide it because they know that their students might not tolerate it.
0: So it's the opposite of most universities where, <laughs> kind where the conservatives of, are kind of passing in, as liberals. Yeah,
1: it's kind of interesting. So I don't know what he actually thought of Margaret Thatcher, but I know he wouldn't have offered in that setting you'd really alienate people.
0: And were you coming to all of this fresh? So Margaret Thatcher, did you know anything about her No, I'd
1: never heard of her before. I had a vague, my ideas of of the UK ended with the American Revolution. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. And we were mostly, because it was a comparative politics class, we were just studying the parliamentary system, the fact that other systems exist, and that there are advantages and disadvantages to both. And that, you know, I think if you're American and you're raised in a certain sort of religious way of learning American politics, the American Constitution is handed down by God, basically. And comparative politics was the first time that it was kind of mathematically shown to me, oh, look, there are different ways of running elections, and you can have runoffs and all these different ways, you can have third parties, and here are the mathematical ways that this affects an outcome. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both, that there might not be one magic system.
0: And Did you feel that because, so it wasn't just that your education to that point had been active, but it was also that things were fresh to you that weren't fresh to other people everything was fresh to you right every every time you encountered a a subject as part of this really broad
1: and it felt so relevant I mean I hadn't been numbed to education I think there's another thing I worry about with the way people talk about education because I think I don't know if it's that they come to it when they're young and they don't care or that so much of what an education is, our first experiences of it, not mine, but other people's, are sitting quietly while someone talks. When you're at an age where sitting quietly is really tough. And that wasn't it for me. When I encountered these things, they were extremely relevant. And so the stories of my first term at BYU, you know, one of my first lectures I went to, I raised my hand in a class, and I asked... A question. I asked what something was because I'd never heard of the word. And the class went silent and everyone was staring at the floor. And of course, the word was Holocaust. And I'd asked what it was. And I think people thought that I was making a really kind of off colored joke. And I wasn't, of course. Or that
0: you were denying it.
1: Yeah. And I wasn't. I had no idea what it was. I was just actually asking, what is this? What I'm, does it mean? I've never heard of this. What is this word? after that, you know, I I wasn't majoring in history at the time, but I saw there's a history of the Jews course and I thought, right, that might be for me. And so I took it towards the end of my time at BYU. So three, four years later, my dad visited me and we went to dinner and he gave this long lecture about the new world order and how the the Jews were trying to take over the world. And they were starting to they were trying to start World War III so that they could consolidate their power and all the rest of it. And while he was talking, I thought, I've heard this. And I realized I'd read that. I'd read that in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I knew that that had been published at the turn of the century. And in 1921, it had been disproven as a forgery. And that that hadn't stopped Hitler four years later from quoting it in Mein Kampf. I also knew that my dad hated Adolf Hitler and would have been horrified that he was quoting him in any way. And it was the first time in my life that I felt like I knew what my dad was saying. And he didn't. And that was a very shocking reversal of the parent-child relationship because parents often have kids run into a room saying something they've heard and they don't really know what it means and everyone laughs. That's what the parent-child relationship is. And this was a complete reversal of that. And it would put us into conflict with each other in a a pretty serious way that would ultimately end with estrangement. And I I tell the story of that because I think it's a story that has a lot of drama in it and there's a lot at stake and that was my experience of education more than being this kind of passive dead institutionalized sterile thing where you know what you're going to get out from when you you know you put something in and you get something out and that seems a bit creepy to me this whole idea that what you do is you take a republican you put them in a university and you get a democrat out kind of is distressing i think is it shows there's something really wrong with the system it shouldn't it shouldn't be that the beginning a process like that that you know where it's going to go not if it's a living vital unpredictable thing I think giving yourself over to an education should feel like a gamble it should feel like a terrible risk because that's what it is
0: and one of the themes that comes through is that that battle was constant and it didn't all go one way right it wasn't like you would go to college you would be taught something and you'd realize that your father was wrong often the view that you grew up with pulled you back against the things that you were being taught and actually it was often harder to move away from the stuff that you've been told as a child into this world. I mean, it comes through really strongly in it, that this is a constant...
1: It's a slow process, and it isn't always... Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think my first semester at Cambridge, I think, is was a pretty good example of that, because at Cambridge, I would say, you know, my first week in Cambridge, I, I think it was in the Gibbs building, I went to a lecture, and I think it was Duncan Kelly who gave this lecture on positive and negative liberty. That kind of moved the world for me a little bit, because it had never occurred to me that the obstacles, the restraints that are on a person can be internal. That it's not just that you can have external restraints keeping you from doing something. There can be things, beliefs that you have that might be the most important thing. The most important restraints on you might be inside your own head. That had never occurred to me. Learning about that, it was it was interesting. That lecture, it was about a week later, someone sent me this Bob Marley song, and I'd never heard of Bob Marley because I'm going to always be behind on pop culture references, forever. <laughs> but it was a redemption song, and I got really... I got really obsessed with that lyric, emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. And I listened to it over and over. And then I ended up on Wikipedia, which is where you go, and reading about the cancer that he'd had, that he'd been recommended to amputate the toe. And because he had the Rastafarian belief in a whole body, he didn't. And he died. And he was quite young. Reading that at that time, I realized I've never had my vaccinations. I've been saying for years that. I think my dad's paranoid about the medical establishment, and I think he's wrong. I've renounced his world, but I'd never quite found the courage to live in this new one. And so that was a big moment for me where I took a big step forward. But at the same time, I mentioned I had encountered feminism at Cambridge for the first time. And I did. And I read all of these kind of feminist books. I started with John Stuart Mill, Mary Wollstonecraft, and I... I inched towards the second wave, but that was a bit much for me. I wasn't ready for that. (laughs) uh, But, you know, John Stuart Mill, in a lot of ways, was this earth-shattering moment. He has that that line that I love where he says, of the nature of women, nothing final can be known. And, of course, I had been raised in a way where it was very much thought that the nature of women is known and the idea that women are this. They're loving, they're nurturing, they're not ambitious. they are All of these things was very much a part of how I conceived of myself. And it was a struggle for me because I actually felt like I had quite a lot of those attributes that I'd been told were not natural for me so when I read that of the nature of women nothing final can be known I yeah it moved the world in a way but in a way it really didn't because I went back that Christmas and my family was a family that had been infected with violence especially violence against women and I witnessed a, a violent episode between my brother and his wife who was my age and I imagined that she would just be embarrassed, and that what she would want was to cover that up, and so I did, and there was no lecture on feminism. There was no showing of female power. There was no lecture on women's rights or human rights or any of that. Actually, what I did is I let my father deal with it because he was the patriarch, and in my mind, it would have been entirely inappropriate for me to supersede his authority, even though there was this wing of my mind that was opening up that had started to think he was wrong.
0: So you ended up studying, we did this together, 19th century political thought. So John Stuart Mill was a starting point. And one of the the connections that you were trying to make, or you ended up trying to make, is between that that world that Mill comes from and the fact that Mormonism and other utopian movements of the time were also trying to rethink everything, really. Um, Just say a bit more about what drew you to that. I, I kind of half know the answer, but even I don't completely know the answer. Why did you end up wanting to write a PhD about 19th century utopian thought?
1: I'm not sure I know the answer either. So but so no one knows, I, so. <laughs> I think it's probably buried in the dark, frightening recesses Therent of my head. But I think I was very at home in that century, in a way. I mean, I had grown up. We had books in my house, but we didn't have... We didn't have a ton of books, and if we did, I didn't read them. What I did read were religious tracts. I read the letters of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, and I read their lectures, and I I read all of that kind of thing. So I was really at home in the language of the 19th century because that is when the first Mormon prophets that are really venerated in their religion had been writing. I think, I mean, that religion was, it was my religion, and that century was the, the birth of that religion. I think I felt like I needed to understand it when I left BYU, I'd never really met anyone who wasn't Mormon. If maybe two or three people, for a few minutes, I'd met people who weren't Mormons. But no one in my life wasn't Mormon. But I had begun to wonder if I was. And I wasn't sure whether I was. And the reason that I thought maybe I wasn't was was polygamy. Because in the the history of the church, we'd had this practice of polygamy. And and that was a huge issue for me. But I also felt like it wasn't something that I could just throw over. It was such an important part of my family's heritage and legacy and I'd had a great great grandmother who was a a plural wife and had sacrificed an enormous amount to get our family to the United States so they could be good Mormons and so it was something I think I felt like I had to investigate very thoroughly so that I could in my head at least tell her I I didn't take the decision entirely lightly.
0: You said earlier, I'm gonna come back to the cult question, so Mormonism is not a cult and Certainly when you were right and I I learned a lot about it from reading what you wrote about it, but the ideas, the 19th century ideas that found the movement have a lot in common with lots of other utopian movements, including some that end up being radical socialism too. Um, And all of them have a slightly cultish aspect to them, and some of them literally become these closed (laughs) communities. But the ideas themselves are in some ways remarkably open and Mm -hmm. really experimental. I mean, that's the other thing. That period of political thought was amazingly experimental Hmm. so now we're sitting in cambridge university um (laughs) a great great university (laughs) lots of people doing lots of different things but your sense of it which i kind of partly share is that and this relates to contemporary politics too is that it's it's a bit closed off from the full world of experience is that still your sense of you live in cambridge now right you're not at university but you live in the town
1: it is, I mean, I would never say this is a cult, this isn't a cult, but I do think it's useful to say this is an attribute we think of as as almost defining of a, of a cult. And it does seem odd to me that sitting in a place like Cambridge, we'd say to Mormons they're a cult when we ourselves tend towards that, I think, quite a bit. So I don't want to make any pronouncements about who's a cult and who isn't. But I would say our ideas about education are really passive, and I think they are. Another thing about the way people talk about education that I don't understand or that troubles me is that I think it's most often talked about as a kind of social advantage that you get an education so you can get a better job so you can make a living and I think to talk about it that way is to essentially reduce it to a privilege and for some bizarre reason we accept this and we accept that access to a good education is going to be something that separates certain kinds of people from other kinds of people and then that leads I think really quickly to education becoming a kind of identity itself a kind of class identity, and people with a specific identity have different interests than other people. They have different experiences, and that really troubles me. And then I think, then going back to the cult question, I think you can get to a place really easily where universities themselves are kind of dead zones for free debate, actually, because of these things like, um, for example, I think if if you think education is a privilege, and that some people deserve it, and that other people don't. You're going to be quite affronted when people turn up in your classroom that you think don't deserve it. And maybe that will be because they're prejudiced, maybe because they're sexist, maybe because they're racist. Whatever it is, in your mind, they don't deserve to be here, and, and you do. And I think the idea of a safe space can kind of be born from this. There are good reasons to have some safe spaces, but the idea that a whole university should be safe. I don't think anything about education should be safe. So I I worry about that. I worry about this idea that certain types of people don't belong in classrooms because they're prejudiced and bigots. It's also logically a really ridiculous thing to think, because if there's one place that you would want to gather up all of your prejudiced, racist, sexist people, I think it would be put them all in classrooms. It's a really wonderful place for them. So I'm concerned that when it comes to the difficult things, because of that That mechanism to ostracize people, unfriend, I think is so strong in a place where education is an identity and certain people deserve it and other people don't. And we will exclude them if they don't meet this puritanical ideological criteria. I mean, take something really difficult to talk about. Like a few weeks ago, there was the um, Aziz Ansari fiasco that really divided people and there's a lot of really difficult things to talk about with that story having to do with sexual assault and female empowerment and whether women are free agents or whether they're victims all of this kind of stuff is really hard to talk about if i'm being honest with you i would be more comfortable casually mentioning that at the dinner table of family of mine who recently defended trump to me after charlottesville than i would be at most dinner parties in cambridge
0: wow There's so much that we could talk about that comes out of that, but I'm going to just ask one because it is something that we talk about quite a lot on this podcast. It's a feature of contemporary democratic politics and it relates to what you just said about education being a kind of proxy for class or or turning a group of people into an interest group. So it is the big divide in contemporary politics. Whether someone went to university or not turns out to be the strongest marker of the likelihood that they voted for Trump or against Trump, voted for Brexit, or against Brexit. So Cambridge, part of the reason, let's agree it's not a cult, but it's quite a bubble town, is that it it has a world view which is pro-European, broadly cosmopolitan, and therefore very remain, surrounded by bits of the east of England, which have a very different view. And you only have to go five miles one way or five miles another way. And the fact it's a university town is a huge part of that, because you see this with university towns all over the UK. You see it in the States too, right? Famously, it's the kind of Austin, Texas yeah. question. Cambridge is, is Austin and Cambridge here is Texas, if you know what I mean. So you've probably seen more of the range of people's experiences of education. You've, you've had a pretty diverse college education, right? As you say, BYU to Cambridge and Harvard was the other Cambridge was thrown into that mix too. Yeah. I agree with you. It's really dangerous, and it's really dangerous for democracy. So I'm going to ask you a little question to end with. So what do we do about this, right? How, how if this is the new divide, a kind of class divide of a sort, but it's not exactly a class divide, but the educated and, not the uneducated, but people who, who have got, gone less far along the ladder suddenly are kind of pulling in different directions. And so to go to college in the States... Says something about you, and to vote for Trump says the other thing about you. Where's the hope in this? I don't normally ask the hopey question. Yeah, you're asking to solve
1: the education crisis. No, solve democracy. Solve democracy by way of the education crisis. Yeah, but just Just at the end. Yeah, but from the 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 range of things that
0: you've seen, even that BYU Um, experience, which is really interesting, which is you've seen the the conservative version of this, which in some ways is more tolerant.
1: I find BYU. Yeah, I'm more comfortable with the intellectual environment. of BYU than I than I am with Cambridge, In a lot Cambridge. Of ways,
0: Would you count Harvard as well? I would,
1: yeah. And I, I mean, and I had wonderful experiences at Harvard. I had wonderful experiences at Cambridge. There's so many things about Cambridge that are great, but there's something going awry, I think, conceptually, with what people think an education is. And I don't know if, how to fix it. Is a massive question, but I think.
0: Or how do you bridge it? What are the bridges between And I don't know as much about
1: the UK education system, but I think we'd have to take this idea that education isn't a privilege and that education is for everyone really seriously. And in the US, that might mean some fairly radical things. I mean, right now, funding for schools is tied to your zip code, which effectively means that certain schools are awash in money and other schools can barely get by. If we're serious about education being something everyone should have access to, because if education is about making a person, that's not a class issue. Everyone should have access to the materials to participate in the creating of their own mind. If we're serious about that, there's no reason to fund some schools more than others, not if they're public institutions. That doesn't make any sense. So I still think there's practical things you can do to, to send that kind of message. And then the, the conceptual side of it, I think the passivity thing for me is really concerning. And I don't, again, I don't know if that's because people start too young and by the time they are old enough to, to start Caring seriously about intellectual things, I worry that they do. I worry that by the time this country is
0: full, which is I
1: worry that by the time they're old enough, I mean, you think about your experiences of what a thing is, everything about what what is an education, and I think the ideas people have about it are not active and they're not interesting. They're passive things: chalkboards, exams, endless exams. They're not I, chalkboards
0: now, they're the digital interactive <laughs> digital, whiteboards. Whatever, but it's a lot passive. of
1: sitting quietly and, and being told things that you don't actually care about. And I think the, the passivity thing for me, I just really worry about it. And I I worry that our ideas about education, again, as this conveyor belt, make it a very safe, sterilized thing. And I think that ha- that just has to change. I mean, my own experience with education is that it is this living vital quite dangerous thing and I think we have to go back to a, a time where we actually believe that education is powerful I think people love to say education is power but I don't think anyone believes it I think especially the people who say it don't believe it
0: and do you think especially the people who have it don't believe it?
1: I think especially the people who have it don't believe it because because they're experiencing this weird version of it where you know what you're going to get and it's it's a factory in a way and I think if there's a, a thing that I want to say about my own experience my own story with education is that You know, I I think education is powerful, but power means change and change can mean calamity. And that was kind of my experience in a way. It was it was good calamity and it was bad calamity. But I mean, I lost a lot because of my education. I lost a lot of members of my family. And I think for me to talk about education in any other way besides calamity, even though I'm aware it's probably uncomfortable for people to hear me talk about you know, the calamitous power of my education, it probably really annoys people. But I think to talk about it in any other way would be to deny its essential potency and to deny that it's a living thing, that you can't control it, you shouldn't be able to control it. If you can control it, it's propaganda.
0: I hope from that, people listening, believe me when I say this is the must read book of the year. It's out on the 22nd of February. Read it. If you're in Cambridge and you'd like to come and hear a different conversation between me and Tara about the book, we're going to be launching it on the 28th of February uh, at the Divinity School in St John's College, which isn't a Divinity School. It's just a really nice lecture theatre. It's free, but you'll need to register online, so go to Eventbrite and get a ticket, and we'll see you there. And do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Should uh, I leave that? Should I just say? Just say,
2: join us next week.
0: Jo- okay. Search on Eventbrite. She
1: doesn't like the way
0: you're doing this. <laughs> this, is, this is regular, right? Um, so where do you want me to start from again? You've got to the end of Search on Eventbrite. Have oh, I? So I just say, join okay. do you think you could, Yeah, just join us next week. It's my favourite part. <laughs> do please join us next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Clunk. I don't sit a whole more time without the thunk of the coffee. Well, Surprising I'm how hard this is. I don't is. seem able to not drink um.
2: it, so. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.